so thankful for songs that kind of a, evoke a response. Um, that third one, I mean, I know, I, all of them do at some level, uh, but that third one where we build and we build and we build and then hallelujah. Oh, my word. I just, that is one of my new favorites, if I can say that. So thank you for uh, singing that one once again. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we can come into your presence in corporate worship. I thank you for your word and what it does in lives every day of the year. Father, I pray as we come into this particular time, as we conclude our series in 1 John, that uh, what we will look at today and what we have considered for the last few months would take root in our lives. And Lord, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son, would take root in new life. That the, the root that is taken in so many lives, the people that are already Christians, Lord, I pray that it would bear fruit. And so, Father, we rejoice in the opportunity we have to spend in this time in your word. Pray you'd bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the last time you'll see this particular slide in relation to 1 John, uh, we are uh, finishing this idea of from darkness to light. And folks, listen, uh, I've been wrestling in between the services because you know, when, I, when you preach a message, you preach it all. And, and, and you, just, you just you get out there and you just come up. And then you have to do it again. And, and I, I've been praying that God would keep the passion that I had in the first service here for this service. Because this particular study has meant a lot to me. It has grown me in my faith and understanding of who God is. It has challenged me in the way that I understand how to study his word and, and how to communicate that. And so... Uh, I'm very thankful for the series, and I, and I pray that you would be uh, meditating on all the lessons that we've learned here and, uh, and that you would continue to mature in your faith as well. I wanted to start this morning by asking you a penetrating question. Does your life make sense? It is one of those questions that can come up, really, no matter what age you might be, you might be asking this question. What is it about your life that does or does not make sense? And I, I hope most of it does, but as you consider it, it's kind of at the moment, it's a yes or no question, right? Does your life make sense? And internally, and you don't have to say it out loud because I'm afraid, you know, it might be an overwhelming one side or the other and someone's going to feel left out, right? Does your life make sense, yes or no? So let's go down this road of no for a minute. There are many people who look at their lives and it's just they really, they consider, you know, I, I don't know why things are the way they are. And it really, uh, if, you, if you think about it, you, you can ask your question, what is causing confusion? If my life doesn't make sense, it means something's, I don't understand something. I'm confused. I thought it was supposed to be this, but it's this. And you fill in the blanks because I'm asking you that question from your perspective, not mine. So considering the little children in the room, uh, what are you confused about, little ones? That's what I all call all three of my kids. I still do it from time to time with the girls. Yeah. Hey, little one. I love my little ones. And they, I remember parenting them. We parented them through many times of confusion. And why, my son asked one time, why is it that this particular friend of his, why does he never want to do right? 
And uh, Witt was very focused on doing right when he was a little guy. And I remember he came inside, and I remember, I'll never forget that question. Why, why, does, why does my friend not want to do right? I don't know. What about teenagers? What are you confused about, teenagers? You're old enough to actually respond to this and, and enter into this discussion. What is it about your life that is totally, it's like, it just doesn't make sense. And then I know there's a whole bunch of adults that could, could say all kinds of things about why life is confusing and why things are or are not the way they expected them to be. When I think about confusion in my life, I think about my teenage years. This is the, you want to get me on the verge of tears. You want to get me entering into my salvation. And all that God has done for me, ask me about my teenage years. They were the painful years. When I was a little guy, I was the youngest of six. I was a spoiled, bright, spoiled brat. Life never had it so good. As an adult, I'm a confident adult, if you didn't notice. But as a teenager... People were big and God was small. I might mention that a little bit later. Teenagers, you may not know this, but, but I am so thankful for the ministry that God has raised up here for your benefit. I'm so thankful you had a blast last or Friday night with the, with the Nerf War. I wanted to be there, uh, but not to get too graphic, I was too busy feeling better. <laughs> I say, Chrissy, I can't tell people I passed a stone. <laughs> I passed a stone. Two. All right. I'm so thankful for what God does in lives. And so, folks, when I, I was that, that outcast kid. I was the one on the fringe. I was the one who had no confidence whatsoever. I was the youngest spoiled brat that morphed into someone I didn't know who I was. And folks, listen, teenager, if you're here today, pay attention. Because what is said for the adults is said for you every week. But maybe you're feeling it a little bit more acutely. Because by the time we're adults, we've, we've calloused over a lot of sensitivities we had as teenagers. When I was a teenager, my confusion turned to faith. Now, I was an older teen. I was 18, 19 years old when, when I came to know Christ as my Savior. But, but I'll tell you, I remember that time so vividly in my life. And I can only explain it by Christ in me. So how, how, how did that happen? How did I go from confusion to faith? Well, someone shared with me the reality of spiritual life and spiritual death. Someone loved God enough. His name was Eric Kale. One of these days, one of you guys are going to ask me about this guy because I mention his name all the time. Eric Kale and Randy Kirk, two guys that loved God enough that they shared his love with me. And I came to faith. But really, I don't think they didn't explain it as spiritual death. They didn't really say that, but I understood what they meant. And so as we consider this text from last week, 1 John 5, 16, you know, we learned from this particular text a couple things. One, we learned there at the bottom, there is a sin that leads to death. And I, I was 
that's nice to know, to be honest with you, as a, when you're a person that doesn't understand who Christ is and what he's done on, on our behalf, there is a sin that leads to death. I was a very good religious person, but I did not understand what that meant. There's also a sin that does not lead to death, right? And so I ask you this morning, which one would you rather be guilty of? The sin that leads to death or the sin that doesn't lead to death? And I think we'd all be like, well, I want to be the one who's you know, guilty of sinning the ones that don't lead to death. And you, if you remember, it was the idea of not knowing exactly what this text means. The good news is that whether, if you're guilty of a, of a sin not leading to death, notice what God does with that. It says that God is able to give him life to those who, will commit, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. That's the gospel. The bad news there are sins leading to death. The good news is, is that there is a gospel. Jesus Christ came, and those who commit the sins that, that do not lead to death, he gives them life when they come to faith in him. That's the gospel. But what is it about this sin that leads to death? And I didn't really answer it last week. I was asked in between the service, so what's the sin to death? All right, thank you, Bob. You set me up just fine. All right. Well, to be honest with you, there's so, much, uh, so many opinions about what it could be, what it couldn't be. I know this, and this is, this is universal. Everybody would agree with this part of it. Rejection of Jesus Christ is without a, without a doubt a sin that leads to death. Why? Because if you reject Jesus, you reject your only opportunity for forgiveness of sins. And we know, and he says in the next verse, I don't have it up on the screen. He says in the next verse, uh, uh, all wrongdoing is sin. So we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all committed these, these sins that do not lead to death because the sin that leads to death is rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, I will be honest. The odds of a person sitting in this room having committed the, re, the, 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 the sin that leads to death, which I'm defining as rejection of Jesus Christ, is pretty small. The percentage possibility. Why? Because you... If you reject Jesus Christ, you're probably not going to come into a room like this with people like this. All right? Many people are worried about the unpardonable sin and all that stuff. Listen, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. People who have committed it don't care. People who, who reject Jesus Christ don't usually come to church. But I'm telling you right now that if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, please hear the word of God today. God is able to bring life. Whatever your sins might be, no matter how heinous the sin might be, which, folks, listen, we got to consider this. No matter how ugly, how vile, how wicked, whatever word you want to use to describe it, no matter what your sin looks like, it is forgivable in Christ. The only thing, the only thing that can't be forgiven is someone who, for, who rejects Jesus Christ because there is no forgiveness outside of him. I want you to consider uh, what uh, I believe it was Peter said in Acts 4. Uh, this Jesus is the stone uh, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has uh, become the cornerstone. This is Jesus who's become the cornerstone. And notice this, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. It goes on to say there is no other name under heaven given 
among men by which we must be saved. Christianity is a very uh, singular focused faith. It is Christ alone. And we can go into the solas of Scripture, right? Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we can say, praise God that that is truth that we know. And for every Christian, we can rejoice in. But for every non-Christian, he who has a son has life. And if you've already rejected Christ, if you never come to faith in Christ, then you do not have the son and therefore you do not have life. And it's no wonder when people say, does your life make sense? People say no. When you're fighting against the God of creation, when you're fighting against the way he's told us that we are to live, to honor him and love one another, when you're living against the, gui- the guidance of, of God, life's not going to make sense. So let's, let's just consider this. For the non-Christian, right, for those who've never come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you've never confessed your sins, you've never repented from your sins and, and asked God to uh, just take them and cover them with the blood of Jesus Christ, right? For the non-Christians, let me encourage you to do something, right? What are you supposed to do? Come to Christ. And if you don't know what that means, I, I, at the end of the service, hopefully I'll, I'll remember to pray a prayer to help you understand that Coming to Christ is not a mystery. It is the fulfillment of mystery. That God would send his son so that you could have forgiveness of your sins. And that you could have a relationship with God for eternity. That you would be able to worship holy and purely the creator of the universe. And that you would know what genuine joy is. All that comes when you come to Christ. There's still hard times in life. But in Christ, we were able to have joy even in, in the hard times. What about Christians? For the Christians, I want to encourage you to do something too. What do you think it is? Let me hear you. Yeah? Come to Christ. The gospel's for every person at every moment. We say it all the time. It comes to unbelievers for faith. It comes to believers for assurance, for remembrance, for for us to mature in our faith. We ought to be coming to Christ every day, not for salvation. We've already come to salvation. We're coming to Christ for, 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 for the joy that he provides, for the for the opportunity to grow more and more in love with him and and to be reminded about all we have in him. And that's really what we're going to focus on with the remainder of our time together. But before we get there, let's consider this. There are some people that said, yes. Does your life make sense? Yes. Now, that's a yes that God would say amen to, okay? Because some of us are probably, yeah, it makes sense. It's a mess, right? No, no, no. He'd be like, yeah, everything's going great right now. This is, this is the idea. Does your life make sense in God's eyes? Yes. And if that's true, if you're like, no, I truly get this Jesus thing. I truly understand what faith is. Then you, then you already stand, understand this. You already understand that life's confusions are overcome by confidence in Christ. John has been writing and writing and writing. And, and he's been communicating with these people saying, listen, you have been confused by these false teachers. You have, I'm trying to write to you in such a way that you will know, that you will know you will have confidence in all that God has done for you and is willing to do through you 
please know that you are God's child. So it, it, this big idea is last week's confident faith leads to Christ-centered worship. We'll get to the worship part at the end, but I want to build on this idea of confident faith here. John basically, uh, in, in the passage of, of, of chapter 5, 18 through 21, John points to three confidences that we have. We have them. This is not something you have to grow in confidence in. I mean, maybe yes, I mean, in the sense of your processing through the truth. But John is saying, no, for every Christian, we have these things. This is true of every Christian. And so let's look at the first one. The first confidence is this. Be confident that Jesus protects Christians from living in continual sin. Listen, we sin. John's already covered that. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar, right? No, we sin. But remember, our sin is characterized by a sin that does not lead to death. And every sin that does not lead to death is forgivable and is forgiven in Christ. Past, present, and future. That's the good news of the gospel. So we have a confidence. This is ours to cherish and to enjoy. We have this confidence that Jesus protects Christians from living in continual sin. This might sound familiar. He said something similar. Uh, well, actually, no, I'm sorry. This is verse 18. Let me read that. I, I keep going, trying to get, we're going to, he said it back in verse three, but let me just go through this first. All right, we know. There's three we know statements. Verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20 all start with the same word, we know. It's that word oida. It's the knowing by instruction. It's the knowing that it has been given to us by the word of God. We know this be, to be true Everything that he's saying out of these three we knows, he's saying it because God has said it. So we can take God at his word. We know what? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. John said this in, in chapter 3, verse 6. He said, uh, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. So we have talked about the nature of this particular type of sin is the habitual, continual, non-repentant sin. It is not talking about the sin that has been committed and has been confessed and, and repented of. This is talking about someone going through life, continuing to just be unrepentant. Oh yeah, I sinned. Who cares? That was a little one. No, that's not what believers are characterized by. We are not characterized by this. He says, no one who abides in Christ keeps on habitually sinning. That word is in the, in the present. It's like, the, it's, it's part of your everyday life. Now we sin, don't get me wrong, right? We, this is, we get this, we sin, but we're not sinning the sin that leads to death. We're, we sin and we are still called to confess and repent from that sin, right? Forgiveness is in Christ, but we're still called to, to keep the, the fellowship uh, healthy between us and the Lord. So our confidence comes from God's redemptive work in our lives. That's, that's what he says. So our confidence, this idea of the redemptive work, that's that work that was done in me back in college. That was that work that, yes, uh, uh, Eric and, and Randy were the messengers, but the Holy Spirit did the work inside as I was in Romans chapter 6, right? God did that redemptive work. He redeemed me from death to life. He forgave me. In verse 18, it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God, this is, this is the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. John's already said this too. 
uh, earlier in the book, I'm sorry, he said it earlier in the book that, that we have been born of God. We'll look at the scripture later, and, and it's the idea that they're either, you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. Which one are you? Well, no one likes to admit they're a child of Satan, but admitting it or not, if you're not a child of God, that's what you are. And that's, that's some hard news, but it's, it's the bad news of the good news. You can become a child of God. It says here, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So our confidence comes from the redemptive work in our lives, but it, our, our confidence comes from Jesus's person and work. It's the nature of the gospel. And it's right here. He says, he who was born of God, right? No one keeps on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. We're talking about Jesus here. This is where we get the Jesus protection part of the, of the statement. It says, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not see him. So going back to his person. All right, we know that everyone has been born of God, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born. The two things I need to clarify is here is the who has been born in that first part. That's talking about Christians. We have been born in the past, and that, that the blessings of that, uh, that new birth are continuing to, to for eternity, really. But then when we get to this part right here where it says, but he who was born, there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion about who the he is. Is it the believer or is it Jesus? We can see in the New King James, they have chosen to make this the believer because of little h. Other translations have a big h. But he who was born. My opinion, and I think, I think it's, it's a predominant opinion, no matter which opinion you have, we can say this, God is protecting, right? But notice this, it says, he who was born of God, who was born of God? This is a different verb test, this, verb tense. This is it happened in the past. It's a one-time thing that happened. Jesus was born. It says that he was born of God. And this is the part that convinces me. Whoever the he was born of God part protects. Folks, listen, I've lived a sinful life. There was no protecting of myself in, in the sense of of keeping myself from sin. And listen, look at the level of, of protection that's being offered here. And the evil one does not touch him. All right? That's the level of protection that we have in Christ. So whether it's, whether it's the believer or... I, I'm convinced this is talking about Jesus, all right? I'm just saying, listen, we are not going to be touched by Satan. It doesn't mean we don't have difficult times. It doesn't mean we don't struggle in different areas of the world. I'm thinking, when I think of, of an evil one touching someone, I think of Job, right? I really enjoy the devotional time that we spent online over the, a number of months ago now, but it's uh, where we, we focus on the life of Job. If there was anyone touched by Satan, it was Job. But remember, Job was only, excuse me, Satan was only allowed to touch Job at God's direction. Notice what it says here. It says, but he who is born of God protects him, protects the believer, and the evil one does not touch him. You're not going to go through a direct uh, attack of Satan and have, it, and, a lot, and have it have any effect outside of the will of God. God is going to protect you from the evil one. And that Folks, listen, we can live the defeated Christian life. We can allow people to be bigger than God. But when we truly understand who God is, 
when we truly understand what we have in Christ, and when we take him at his word, and he promises that we will not continue, we cannot continually sin because God, Jesus, will protect us from that sin. He will protect us from all that continual, habitual, ugly, unrepentant sin. He will bring conviction into our lives, and the evil one will not have victory. Now, it goes on as we consider this, right? So the first confidence is that we're confident that Jesus protects Christians every day, every moment of every day, from living in continual sin. Confession and repentance is a good practice that we ought to practice. The second confidence is that we can be confident that you are no longer under the power of Satan. Sounds a little bit like what we just said, but notice what it says here. It says, we know, first of all, there's that word again, we know that we are from God. Very similar to verse 18. But notice, he says, remember what John, or, or I should say, remember what John said in 3.10. He said, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of, of uh, the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Right? So we remember this. This one's too long ago. But it is evident that we are children of God when we are uh, doing what God has called us to do, which is practice righteousness. So notice the difference between Christians and the rest of the world as you, as you look at this. We know, that's Christians, we know that we are from God. But what about the rest of the, of the world? The people that you and I know and love and are irritated with and, 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 and know about. All those people that are not brothers and sisters in Christ, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. Child of God or child of Satan. That's where we're at. One, one preacher that I listened to, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, described this predicament the world is in by saying that they are laying in the lap of Satan. And I think his visual was their head is in Satan's lap and he's stroking them saying, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry about that sin that leads to death. It's okay, it's okay. It is not okay. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. They have no choice. Why? Well, I just had these three thoughts. One, the world is deceived into thinking that he's not real, that he's ineffective, that, or that he's just as powerful as God, if not more powerful than God. They're deceived no matter how you look at it. The world, they do not realize their, their spiritual condition of being lost. People that have not come to a genuine personal faith in Jesus Christ are, are going through life because they're going to church and they're doing good things and they're, they're you know, they're, they're happy people and they think, yeah, God's happy with me. Look at my life. It makes sense. And then one day they're going to hear, I never knew you because they had never come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They never realized their spiritual condition. They were lost. And they needed to be found by God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. This is supporting this idea that you do not know uh, their condition and the fact that they're deceived. The natural man, they don't receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's what I'm saying. The unpardonable sin, if you're worried about it, 
take comfort. You haven't committed it. Because if it's important that you don't do it, that's a sign that you haven't done it. The natural man, it does not, he does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. It is foolishness, and they can't even understand it. Why? Because they are deceived, and they don't realize their condition. This is what they're doing. They are spiritually discerned. This is the predicament of the world. And lastly, they do not know their position. I'm talking about their position in God's eyes. As a, as a Christian, you want to have confidence? As a Christian, we can call ourselves a child of God, but let's put that into action. If God were to look into your life right now, Christian, he would see righteousness and holiness and perfection because he's seeing the work of Christ in you. Those of the world, they are still in their sin. So when God looks upon those who will ultimately be separated from believers, they are still dead in their sins and all that accompanies that, and they will be eternally separated from the Father. So this is the predicament of the world, and this ought to concern us. So the first confidence is that we can be confident that Jesus protects Christians from living in continual sin, right? Secondly, we can be confident that we are no longer under the power of Satan. We have been brought from death to life. And thirdly, we can be confident that being in the Son means that we are also in the Father. This ought to blow our minds. To have confidence in this? Notice what he says. And we know, there it is. We know, we've been instructed that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. First of all, let's understand, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. It's a father-son activity. The Father sent the Son into the world, right? We know that the Son of God has come. He doesn't use the name Jesus Christ here, or Jesus in the title Christ. He's, he's saying the Son of God by nature. Remember the, the Scripture reading. We're, we're going to stone you. Why? For what good work? No, because you made yourself equal with God. He goes, because I am. And they rejected him. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us what? He's given us something very, very special. He's given us understanding. This, uh, this word can be translated as uh, he's given us insight. Uh, he's given us uh, discernment. Uh, what, what, why is this so important? Well, let's just look at it, why it's important. And it says, so that we may know him who is true. We have a spiritual understanding. Remember the earlier verse that said the world was basically, they can't know. These are spiritually discerned things and they don't have the Holy Spirit so they can't know them. What we're learning here is that Christians have the Spirit and we can know. We know three things so far. The we know that God has instructed us, but now we're shared a fourth. We know something. It says we may know. What is this one? This is gnosko know. This is that Greek word that doesn't say we were instructed. It's saying we, we're, we've lived it or we're living it or that we may live it. He's saying here, so, hey, listen, 
And we know the Son of God has come, praise God, and has given us understanding. Thank you, Lord, for all the things that we know from your word and how it helps us to live, uh, to honor you, so that we may know him who is true. This is a, an experiential, relational know. You know your friends. You know your family. Well, you can know him who is true. I don't know why the H isn't capitalized here, okay? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Who is true? That word true is the idea of, of uh, pure. That idea uh, is, um, uh, I'm, I'm missing out on, on my words now. Uh, it, it is the um, perfect. It is the, it is the uh, unique. It is the, ah, there are all kinds of words and I'm missing every one of them, just so you know. It is the idea of the one who is authentic. The genuine. I just found the words. He goes on to say, and we are in him who is true. You want to have confidence? Have confidence in this. You know God and you're in him. How does that take place? In his son, Jesus Christ. Notice this particular uh, pattern on verse 20. It starts with, and we know the son of God, and it completes with, we know God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ. It's sandwiched together, and it's saying the only way that we get to know God is by Jesus coming and giving us understanding of who he is, that we know him who is true, and that we are in him who is true, and that's all because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we got to keep going. Having these confidences, the three oidas, what we have been instructed and what we can experientially know through our relationship with God day in and day out, having these confidences does more than dispel our doubts and confusions. Does your life make sense? Well, if it's yes or no, think about this. There's so much more at stake than your understanding of your life. It, they do, God's word and this, these confidences, they do dispel our doubts. God becomes big and people become small. It, it is, it is the, it's putting things in right order. And when things are right order, there's no confusion. But these confidences allow us to enter into earnest worship. And this is, this is where, where we're going to engage in, in the last uh, verse, uh, this last pass, uh, verse of the, of the book. And we're going to touch on it for just a minute. But notice this. These confidences allow us into, in, uh, enter into earnest worship. What am I talking about here? Our worship is centered on the genuine God who gives life. That's what we've just learned by all the confidences. And when we come together and worship, as we are doing now, but this isn't the only time we worship, folks. We worship every day. And in one sense, every moment of every day. Other than sleeping, and if I could find a way to worship while I'm sleeping, maybe, maybe I can sleep. Maybe you know that peace of God that transcends understanding and helps you, uh, you know, know all those things in Christ. If you're a peaceful sleeper, maybe that's one manifestation of it. But I'll say this. Every other aspect of life, our worship is centered on the genuine God. What, it means a false God? You better believe it. And our genuine God gives life and he gives it eternal. It says he is the true God. This is the end of verse 20. He is the true God and eternal life. John used true. Him who is true. Him who is true. He is the true God. Three times, right? As a, a boom, boom, boom in verse 20. But so many people take verse 21 and they 
treat it all by itself as if it doesn't fit in the context of the book. It helps us understand everything that's going on. So bringing the last part of verse 20, he is the true God. This is who we worship. And he gives eternal life. He is eternal life. And in his presence is eternal life. It says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uses this word, little children, uh, uh, wonderful words of encouragement. But he's saying, little children, our worship is to be active worship. What do I mean by this? He says, keep yourselves. It's the idea, that word keep is the idea of guard. It is be active, right? Be active in guarding yourselves from idols. And you can, you can kind of see why people might, like, what is he talking about, right? He hasn't talked about idolatry in the entire book. That's Paul's thing, isn't it? And he's like, no, no, no. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This idea of keeping yourselves is an activity that we participate in. So much of the confidence that we have in God is what he does in us and through us. What this is saying is in response to the work that God is doing in and through us, we must trust him and we must take action and, and, be, uh, and be working along with him to keep ourselves, to guard ourselves from idols. And what idols are we talking about? What idols are, are we to keep ourselves from? Well, um, I thought I had a slide there. Oh, I do. I do. Let's, let's see what uh, Ezekiel has to say. Ezekiel uh, 14, 3 says, Son of man, these, this is God speaking, right? Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Should I listen to their prayers? Should I care what they think? That's what God's asking Ezekiel. So what kind of idols are we talking about? We're talking about idols of the heart. And I think we know what these look like in our own lives, but let me just say this. Idols of the heart are just as real as idols of wood and stone. And we don't have idols of wood and stone in our homes that we would kneel down to and pray to and worship to and all those things, right? We don't do those things, right, as Christians, as 21st century Christians. We don't, we don't do those. But he says, keep yourselves from idols. All those things that are getting in the way and usurping the throne of God in your life. What is an idol? It's an idol of the heart. What is your heart focused on? What is it passionate about? I was so thankful to read one commentary, uh, uh, common, uh, commenter on, the, on Scripture, right? As he wrote, and he said, what are, and he gives an illustration that the first one he mentions was politics. I'm like, yes, thank you. You know it's my soapbox. You know it is. Why? Because it's all around us. If you're passionate about politics or passionate about something else, if, you're, if those passions are held in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a subordinate position underneath the love of God for you and everyone else in this world, fine. I can be passionate, but never allow your passion for anything usurp the rightful place of God on the throne of your heart. You know how, you've heard that before. That's not teaching anything new, unless you've never heard it before. But here we have it. He is the true God and eternal life. That is who we are called to worship. And that's why we can say with confidence as we go in here, you can ask yourself, do we know Jesus? Yes or no. 
You can say, do you live in confidence in him? Yes or no. Are you active in your worship? Yes or no. Our desire as born-again believers in Jesus Christ is that everyone would know Jesus. In that not only will we, will we live in confidence, but we will mature them in their faith and allow them and help them live in confidence. And that we will both be active in worshiping the one true God, both Father and Son. They are one. Confident faith leads to Christ-centered worship. I don't know about you, but when I come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'm not wondering who God is, and I'm not wondering if he cares. I come here to acknowledge his love and his care. And in my position in the church, and to exhort you to the same. If you don't know Christ as your, as your Savior, you cannot have confident faith. And you cannot worship him with a Christ-centered worship because you've rejected him thus far in your life. We invite you to repent of the sins that do not lead to death. Receive the forgiveness that comes from putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And be born again, as Scripture says. And all things will pass away, and behold, all things will become new. You will be a new person in Christ. For all of us believers that have heard this round and round and round again for so many years, we are not off the hook. We need to come to Jesus. And we need to exercise the confident faith that we have and worship him with a Christ-centered worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the time that we've had in your word. Thank you for the life that it brings. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here or in this room or watching online that may have often wondered, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do, I, how, do I, how do I deal with sin once and for all? I'm so tired of failing and doing all these things that I know God is not happy with. And the simple answer is, come to faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into this world as God's son, fully God and fully man, to die in your place upon the cross of Calvary so that you could put your faith in him and your sins be forgiven. All the wages of sin were placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross and his death paid for your sin. Would you come to faith in that? Would you simply call out to God and say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm in need of salvation. There's nothing I can do by myself and on my own strength to, to appease you of your wrath for the sin that I've committed. Father, I come to faith in Jesus Christ who bore your wrath on the cross and paid for my sin. If you pray that prayer today, you will have the Holy Spirit enter into your life and you will know God in a way you've never been able to know him before. The spiritual things that have been hidden from you will be revealed as you enter into his word and study his word. And you will start on a journey of understanding more and more each day as you mature in your faith.
And my hope is that you will be bold enough to step into the, conf- in, into the presence of God and ask him to forgive you based upon what Jesus did in your place. For every other believer in the room and online, exercise the confidence that John has so fervently and passionately tried to convey to us. These are all true. We have these things. We do not have to live a defeated Christian life. We will sin, but we can repent of our sin and and start walking the walk right away. I pray that you would come to worship confidently knowing all that you have in Christ. And I pray that as we leave here today, Father, we pray that you would do a work in each of our lives that as we leave here, you would help us to fellowship with believers and to love the lost to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.